Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more of this and other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at john at cageclub.me, or you can find me on Twitter at probablyrealjb. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-R-E-A-L-J-B. The show is written, produced, and edited by me. Hello and Happy New Year. It's good to be with you all. So obviously I don't normally publish episodes on Saturday. Uh, the show is in the process of getting back to its normal schedule, but a number of scheduling issues due to various technical issues and illnesses on various fronts have proven challenging in this young 2023. So we begin the new year with a talk with someone uh, actually introduced to me by a recent guest, Jessica, aka the Heathen Queen. He's an expert in the ancient Near East and a regular on YouTube and podcasts, as well as the author of the Atheist's Handbook to the Old Testament, which guides curious people with no personal faith investment through what the Old Testament actually says and how to understand it in context and as a historical artifact. Here we talk about his life as a fundamentalist, how research and critical thinking moved him out of that belief system, and what often stands in the way of a real understanding of the Bible and who wrote it. Dr. Josh is my guest today. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Glad we finally were able to nail down a time for this. Uh, but um, yeah. thanks for thanks for thanks for talking. I'm looking forward to, to chatting with you. Yeah, my pleasure. So let's. Um, you have kind of an interesting, like, biography and sort of this endeavor that you do um, in 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 what you cover and how you cover it and all that sort of thing. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your? Uh, your education background, what you have a doctorate in, um, and sort of like what your, what your sort of angle is, uh, in terms of how you, uh, educate the public. Yeah, sure. Um, so my, my specific PhD is in Assyriology. So the languages and cultures of ancient Iraq and Syria, which might sound a touch esoteric. <laughs> Uh-huh. It's very but, specific, that's for sure. Yeah. You know, it's interesting though. It's 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 probably not as specific as it sounds, uh, which is <laughs> which is nice. You know, it's yeah. what all the cool kids are doing now. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Um and you know, if you're if you're listening and you're you're thinking, what in the world is seriology? <laughs> um but it is uh it really is a very interesting field. The reason that it is is because if you're you know, if you're interested in the Bible and particularly the old testament, um you know, outside of just being interested in the ancient world in general, um, you know, understanding where the 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 culture that produced the Hebrew Bible sort of developed from, yeah, uh, you know, that's that's one of the things that Assyriology provides us. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, if you want to know where the flood story came from in Genesis <laughs> nine, like, yeah, I'm your man, you know, um, and. You know that that sort of interest, of course, grew out of uh, my my evangelical 
uh, upbringing. And so I, you know, but before I got my PhD, uh, and master's degrees from Johns Hopkins, uh, I, I had a master's in theology, which is the biggest master's degree that they offered. Uh, it was like 126 semester hours, uh, which is pretty goddamn big. Um, <clears throat> not exactly sure why I signed up for it, but here we are. Uh, but it was in Old Testament studies, so I, you know, six years of Hebrew, six years of Greek, uh, several years of Aramaic, and whatever. But um, yeah, so that you know, that sort of background is what uh, provided the maybe the impetus to to go in and really get that that broad background into the ancient Near East. Um, and of course, it it uh, it resulted in a much a much broader understanding and appreciation of the ancient world, something that wasn't just necessarily tied to the Bible, uh, right. which was, which was really nice for me. Um, okay. So I, I find more and more that I'm in a, um, weird minority <laughs> of people, uh, in the religious studies field, who was never an evangelical. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I think there's six of you now. That's uh... Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I, I get sort of, uh, I, I've heard a lot of the stories and I get the path. Um, you know, I've, I've read a lot of like Bart Ehrman and he, he went mm. through the same thing. Right. And, um, and so I've seen that sort of, uh, that sort of cultural meme over and over and over again. Um, but when did the, move away from, you know, observant religion into, um, secular academic study of religious history, right? Like when did that happen for mm. you? Yeah, I, um, so I, you know, I was an evangelical Christian I was, you know, I was saved born again when I was five years old. Um, so, you know, I certainly, uh, sort of stereotypically grew up in the church, grew up in a Christian family. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went to Liberty University, got my very conservative bachelor's degree while I was in the Air Force, um, and then went to a very conservative seminary uh, for my my first master's degree. And you know, it was it was only uh, it wasn't until I got to Hopkins, uh, my first year there, that um, as a as a fundamentalist evangelical being sort of smacked in the face any number of times with, um, you know, the details of the history, the archeology, span the literary, um, nature of, of Mesopotamian, uh, you know, texts that we have, <coughs> excuse me. Um, it, it was, it was very overwhelming for me, honestly, because, you know, going to, if you go to a slightly more progressive, shall we say, uh, seminary that is more, uh, that takes critical scholarship more seriously, yeah, that doesn't hold to things like young earth creationism or, uh, you know, the, the, the actual historical validity of the flood, you know, those sorts of things, you end up um, dealing, uh, honestly, much earlier with apologetics. And so you, you know, my friends, uh, that, that went to those types of seminaries that then went through the program with me, um, or other programs like it, you know, really because they were sort of, um, 
you know, walked through a lot of these difficulties a little more slowly and methodically and with intentionality uh, on the part of their professors, uh, you know, it, it allowed them to sort of, you know, piece by piece sort of come to come to a level of comfort with these difficulties. Um, whereas for me, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my training, particularly through my, my master, my THM, um, was very much like, well, we have the Bible, that's all the history we need, but that means we have to learn the Bible really super duper well. And how do you do that? Well, you learn the languages like crazy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, by the time I, I left, um, Capital Bible Seminary, like I was sight reading Jeremiah without the vowel points, if that means anything to anybody mm -hmm. listening. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, probably not too many listeners, but that's, <laughs> yeah. I, I get it. <laughs> I mean, I remember uh, in in one of my later years, uh, I, I I begged the uh, the president emeritus of the of the seminary or the, of the university or the college, whatever. To um, he was a he was a Hebrew professor uh, or had been, and and said, please, just like walk us through something, you know, do something with us, advanced. And so that's what he did. He brought us over to his house and it was just two of us, uh, another very excitable, um, linguistics guy, philology guy. And we sat there and, and, uh, you know, I had, I had my Hebrew Bible open, uh, and I had a, uh, a software program that I could make the vowel points disappear and just have the consonantal text. And we just we just sat there and sight read Jeremiah to the point that um, you know, like in any language, ancient language class like that, you know, you read a couple of lines or a couple of verses or whatever, and then you give a translation and an explanation for it. Well, we would read the Hebrew and then like read like pronounce it out loud, and then the next person would read because it was we didn't need to translate it because we all knew what that meant, uh, which was. It was, it was good, but you know, that's how we took it pretty seriously. Uh, but it, it, we had the time to do that because things like, well, let's look at the formation of the Pentateuch or let's look at actual, uh, you know, late bronze age history or, you know, middle bronze age, just that th those things weren't terribly relevant. So when I got to Hopkins, it was, uh, not only did I feel completely overwhelmed trying to piece together all of this broader ancient Near Eastern history, um, uh, on top of learning languages like Akkadian and Sumerian. Uh, but, but then having to deal with these things that, uh, you know, would be, you know, more, more customarily handled by an apologetics class. And uh, of course that just, that just caused me to take a big step back. And I think maybe think a bit more objectively uh, about what I was looking at. So, and that, that, that drove me from the faith. Um, again, that that seems to be. It's really interesting that you are sort of so self aware of that because, like, there seems to be that. It seems to be one of the themes as well is that, like, the the more, like, I don't know a lot of people who were driven away from the faith through study of religious studies and study of the of the Bible, right? Um, and study of uh, the ancient Near East who didn't start fundamentalist, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's there's this sort of like, there's, there's, an, there's a sort of 
obvious breaking point, I think, right? When you when you're when you're a fundamentalist, that if you you have to reckon with uh this information with this framework and you can't intellectually yeah. do it anymore, right? Um it's it's pretty interesting that this seems to be a running theme and yet nobody seems to um sound the alarm. <laughs> you know? I mean I, I heard an example of it today. Uh you know, I was I was listening into a conversation online and it was a gentleman that was saying uh, they were they were talking about the flood mm -hmm. and you know one guy was saying well i think it's you know more of a local flood uh trying to sort of reconcile what we know from you know not that it's in any way my expertise but like the ge geological data or whatever um and uh you know trying to understand like how could there be no actual adam and eve or no actual flood, you know, uh, and, and, and once you, he, he was like, well, if, you know, if I don't believe those things to be literally historically true, somehow all of this just feels untenable. Yeah. And I understand that feeling, right. Cause yeah. that's exactly what I went through and to hear other people who, again, what I would consider to be, you know, more progressive Christians, um, who would say, yeah, but we have to take genre into account and we have to take, and, and, and honestly, like, I think, um, I think it's, it, it is an exercise in apologetics, what they're doing, uh, because, um, and I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, right? Because I think that the question of what the authors actually would have thought uh, is important in that discussion from that vantage point, because, uh, if we're looking at this text as an inspired inerrant, um, you know, group of texts, then, you know, I, I don't know. It feels like there's sort of a, trying to have a foot in both camps. Yeah. Um, and trying yeah. to, trying to hold them both together. And I, I think that's untenable, but it's what they do. So yeah, I mean, I agree. Like, I teach a course in the Bible um, on on the Old Testament, and uh, I'm always telling my students that if you, you know, there's some real insights into the way the people who wrote this thought, right? Like within <laughs> within here, and if you can, if you can, no matter what you believe, if you can separate your sort of faith self from your from your you know academic uh, sort of reasoning self right like hmm. you can actually learn a lot from this and you can actually take quite a bit out of it and if you don't then i i don't know how you can even see the point right i think that to me was when i was sort of i kind of gave up forever um on <laughs> uh you know a sort of theistic understanding of the bible was when i was like i actually get so much more out of this um from a, just a purely kind of humanist standpoint than I, than I ever would have with this like divine, uh, inspiration, you know, reading of it. And it's funny because, uh, you know, I would say that evangelicals do this all the time with other ancient literature, right? I don't think anybody struggles with Gilgamesh, <laughs> right? And nobody right. reads through it and says, I mean, that they, they, they read through the, the scene of him mourning and weeping over Enkidu's dead body. Yeah, and that's yeah. so moving. And it's yeah. th there's there's so much there to pull uh, because it, it really connects with the human spirit or this, this you know, 
utter sadness and despair that he feels as the snake goes off with the the object of his search, you know, the, the, the that plant of life that he yeah, yeah. Oh, over something so trivial as stopping to take a bath, right? And <laughs> and and you you just feel that, right. but nobody sits there and says, "Well, geez, I mean, like, could a snake really move that quickly <laughs> to get that plant of life? You know, yeah. wouldn't he see that? Well, we have to read that, you know, or, or that, you know, they went, uh, you know, 12 double hours, you know, through the racing the sun. Well, that, you know, that 12 is like a, you know, it's like a, a special number. And so it doesn't necessarily mean 12 double hours. You know, this is just a way that it's probably like three hours. Nobody does that. Um, it does. It does mean the twelve tribes of Israel, and it does mean the twelve <laughs> disciples, apostles, right? But like, not clearly, else, right? clearly, it has to be what it is. It's uh, it's God's yeah. big secret. You know, it yeah. it everywhere. <laughs> That's interesting. I I actually um I want to talk more about like Gilgamesh and um the ancient Near East pantheon and exactly how these things are connected to um ancient ancient Israelite uh, tr- culture in a second. But I'm actually curious from your own um perspective like from from your own experience um do fundamentalists try to hide gilgamesh from people because it seems to me to be pretty inconvenient to their narrative that like you cannot read the flood story in gilgamesh and be like wait a second yeah yeah. hold the phone Yeah. yeah you know i'll i'll tell a funny story um I actually decided to put it in uh one of the opening chapters or one of the openings in one of my chapters in my most recent book um, but I, 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 I was, uh, I taught, I taught, I was a pastor for seven years and, um, right after I deconverted, I didn't really want to let that be known quite yet because of, sure. you know, what, what, yeah. what people might think or feel more for their sake, I think, than for mine. Um, but I remember I'd resigned from the, the associate pastor that I, that I'd had, and one of the elders asked me, can you come teach a Sunday school class? Because, uh, you know, the Sunday school teacher's out and his adult Sunday school class. And I said, yeah, sure. Uh, well, I'd been working on, you know, I'd been translating through Gilgamesh, Tablet 11 or something. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna do something. Um, looking back was kind of dumb, right? <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I always wanted to, you know, if I could always, if I could tie together the work that I was doing in school to, you know, what I was going to do in church, you know, that it was less work that I had to do. And so I thought, well, you know, I, what, what can I do? Well, I, so I, I went in and I, I was going to try to show the, this adult Sunday school class in this sort of rural part of Virginia. Um, you know, there's, there are more problems with your understanding of the Bible than you realize. But there are really good people that are working on these problems, right? Good scholars working on these problems. That was sort of my goal. We never actually got there um, because I walked in and had my PowerPoint up. And it, the first slide was uh, a, a quote from, uh, I think it was like Second Corinthians or something, but there was no, no, uh, no tag to show what verse it was. And I said, all right, guys, what, like, where is this in the Bible? People looked at it and they were like, oh, that's, that's 2 Corinthians 6, 7, 8, something like that. All right, good. So then I clicked the slide and Ezekiel chapter 1 came up, you know, a passage about the the wheels and you know, really crazy, crazy looking passage. And yep, you know, sure. I got that. So I was like, all right, awesome, awesome. So then I clicked the slide and this paragraph came up and it said, uh, and then the waters receded and I sent out the raven and 
you know, it, it, it pecked around on the ground and did not return to me. And they're like, oh, okay, so that's the flood. So what's that like Genesis seven, Genesis eight, maybe. And I said, well, this is the, uh, this is the epic of Gilgamesh. And there was just <laughs> silence, like 30, 40 people in this room. And after a couple of seconds, I said, and you know, this text predates the biblical text by at least a thousand years. Yeah. And, um, you know, like it's original stories. Yeah. And I spent the next 45 minutes essentially getting yelled at. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, and yeah. try the people telling me that I didn't know what I was talking about. And I was like, well, this is sort of my wheelhouse. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yes, I, you know, I, for that reason, uh, I do find that when people start to try to make comparisons, uh, and to try to show sort of like comparative mythology, um, with the biblical texts, which I, I don't think is a defeater in any way yeah. for theism, right. Or even Christianity, uh, just so that everybody hears me and is, and we're clear about that, but I, I think it's, I think it's something that you definitely need to factor in though, mm -hmm. uh, in, in your theory of inspiration. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely find that, that, um, either they have sort of a cursory understanding of the story, but usually not even that it's sort of the same thing with like the laws of Hammurabi. Um, you know, when you talk about something like slavery, in the old testament they're like yeah but like the bible is like so much better in the laws than those that are in like the ancient near east you're like yeah they're, but they're not though yeah because yeah. like think about like hammurabi or whatever <laughs> anyway yeah yeah so. yeah i mean hammurabi is essentially plagiarized in the bible right i mean like in 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 many ways right i mean yes so i i that's it, interesting that you ask it that way, because like in a colloquial sense, yes, I would say right. that's because I, I think I know what you mean. Um, I have uh, chapter seven in volume two of the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament is all of it's The title of it is Did the Bible Plagiarize? And that's essentially what I'm looking at is, you know, these it is like I, I start with Genesis one through 11 and just are, where, where are the connections here to other ancient Near Eastern texts? Um, and yeah, I mean, there's no question that things like the covenant code in Exodus 21, that section of the covenant code, uh, is pulling in some way is dependent upon, probably heavily dependent upon, um, the code of Hammurabi or the, you know, the law collection of Hammurabi. And I, I when you bring those sorts of things up, um, Instead of the person listening, generally, again, a fundamentalist apologist, trying to like actually see the connection that you're trying to make, uh, all they're doing is thinking very, very hard about any dissimilarity that they hear as soon as mm -hmm. they hear it and then throwing mm -hmm. the whole, you know, the whole thing away. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, there's no question that the the Hebrew Bible is pulling heavily and dependent heavily, um, directly or indirectly upon uh, myths and law collections and other scribal exercises that come from the ancient Near East in general. 
So let's let's talk about educating people on the ancient Near East. Um, I don't. There's not an army of people like you um, and your spouse <laughs> who uh, who have expertise in this and also the ability to communicate it to a sort of lay audience um, or the desire to do so. So mm. that's that's one sort of rarity. We'll put that aside for a second. Uh, the other thing that I would imagine is is a source of. Uh, of frustration for you and also probably part of the necessity for what you do is it seems to me that the ancient Near East is a, is a hotbed, uh, a, a fertile ground, if you will, pardon the pun, um, <laughs> for junk history and yeah. uh, people making all kinds of connections that aren't there and not making ones that are, um, you know, I, I, I feel like the, it's a favorite place for the ancient aliens people, right? Mm. Um, the sort of, you know, the, the Atlantis types, um, of course we could talk probably a separate conversation about, <laughs> you know, the Aryan race and all that, how that connection there, right. And all that stuff. Um, so I, I, I won't go into that, but, um, I, I, I guess like the, what, what I, what I would like to hear you kind of share your thoughts about a little bit. It, it seems that a lot of the work that you're trying to do is a lot of both unlearning, debunking, hmm. and also providing um, real context, right, to, to, to what's going on. Um, so talk first about like, uh, you know, your experience in sort of um, helping people understand, right, this period, and like what, what people should know as sort of mm. primer to to um the importance of that period to like the rest of you know the whole sort of um israelite and then ultimately much later christian tradition right yeah i mean i think the first thing to recognize uh particularly for people that either came up like me or similarly to me is that like you you can't just read your bible and get the history that's not that's not how it works and while that sounds sort of silly probably to some people listening of course you can't do that that's that that was the exact opposite was what you know my my thought uh coming into my more advanced uh, education because it was you know i could hold my bible up and and say these are the things of which i can be certain mm. right and here's mm. the here's the issue a good friend of mine that went through seminary with me went down to dallas theological seminary to get his phd and his name's Steven Anderson. And it's not that Steven Anderson, if you're familiar with that Steven Anderson, a uh, different Steven Anderson. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, he, very intelligent guy. Um, and like wrote his dissertation on um, the, the, the names in Genesis 5 and trying to get back to like proto-Semitic. Uh, based on was very interesting and oh. very flawed, okay. terribly, terribly flawed okay. uh, research project. But um, but when he graduated down at Dallas, um, he wrote his dissertation on uh, essentially working on a theory to try to defend the dating of the Book of Daniel. Okay. And if you're, I don't know if you're familiar oh, with the debate there. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I through and through. Yeah. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, you know, the, the big issue for everybody listening is, you know, if, if, if Daniel, um, is written when it purports to have been written, yeah. um, uh, during the life of this guy, Daniel, who lived, um, you know, in the, in the sixth century, well, it makes prophecies about 
you know, things that happen for the centuries to come. And sometimes pretty goddamn specific yep. prophecies, uh, particularly coming down into the second century. Yeah. <laughs> ECE. And uh, you know, so that's that's a big deal um from a from a validation of the supernatural nature of the text. Well, of course, scholars would say uh actually this text is compiled uh particularly those portions are compiled right mm -hmm. around 165 mm -hmm. BCE. Um so after these events have taken place except for some that appear in chapter 11. Well, well and then of course the ones that they it gets wrong are yeah. the ones that happen after it was written. <laughs> That's exactly right. right. That's right. exactly right. Yeah. Um and so one of the things that one of the arguments that comes up all the time is, well, Daniel gets so many historical things wrong that he should get right. right. You know, the yeah. stuff that he's living through, the rulers that he served, like <laughs> he, he gets those wrong. Yeah. Um, so one of the issues is the character Darius the Mede. And, right. uh, you know, Darius is just a figure we don't know anything about because like it doesn't seem like he was a, a real character. Um. And so my friend Stephen wrote his dissertation, essentially trying to establish that Darius the Mede was this, this other person that we still don't know anything about, Syaxares II. Um, and he's using Xenophon and these other texts. It doesn't matter. Anyway, he has this, I say all that to say this, there's a footnote, I think it's in chapter two, and I quote it in uh, volume one of the Atheist Handbook has a whole chapter on the dating of the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I quote him in this footnote, and he essentially says this, Daniel is not just another source of information. It is the source of historical information against which all other sources must, must be measured. Wow. And when you, when you come from that perspective, when you come from that position, where I'm sorry, but you're starting with your conclusion and backing into the data. Um, you know, this is where obviously I think you run into trouble uh, because you will make data points fit where they do not fit. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that I would I would suggest anybody that's interested in getting into the ancient world, either because they're a very firm fundamentalist evangelical Christian that wants to understand the, the Bible backgrounds. Uh, or if you're just somebody that's interested in the ancient world in general, set aside this idea um, that we can know with specificity some of these things, or or uh, that if a text says it, that must be how it happened, right? It's sort of you know disavow yourself uh, of such notions because there are lots of things that texts do in the ancient world, just like they do today. Um, there aren't there aren't these texts that are free from propagandistic mm -hmm. motives, mm -hmm. and so even if you read through royal inscriptions, uh, you know from from like I don't know Neo the Neo Assyrian Empire, you can't just read those and say okay, well Sargon in his eighth <laughs> campaign went and did all this shit where he busted himself, you know, busted his way single handedly over a mountain and defeated Urartu. Like you you can't do that, right? You have to say. Eh, <laughs> did he did he though um and so this is of course this is for everybody that 
you know, knows this stuff already, which is probably most of the people listening. Like this is the this is the field of the historian. This is what they do. Right. Um, is trying right. to wade through that data. So right. that that's the the one thing that I would say is if you are holding on to like a well, here's my starting point. And my starting point is this text, and I can know that this is true. And then I can sort of piece the things together elsewhere uh, around it. Like you, you can't unfortunately do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll tell one more very quick and funny story. It, again, it has to do with the <laughs> dating of Daniel. I was in a debate about a year and a half ago, and somebody somebody said to me, the guy that was debating me said to me, he's a really nice guy. I really like him a lot. But he said, well, Josh, I just, I guess I just don't understand your position here. Look, Josephus says that Alexander the Great went to Jerusalem and the high priest showed him the scroll of Daniel, which Alexander recognized as being about him. Like, how could that happen in the late fourth century if this book isn't put together until the second century? Josh, it doesn't make sense. Like, how do you even figure that out? And I'm just like scratching my head, like, right. <laughs> okay. I mean, uh how where like where do i start where do you start i've ended up saying not to him because i I value his friendship um but to other people in in those somewhat similar situations that are perhaps more antagonistic listen i don't have time uh (laughs) or the inclination to give you a two-year introductory course to how to read ancient texts like i just i I can't do that sorry go to school yeah. <laughs> um, no. Sorry. Or read my books and then then come back and we'll talk. I don't know. I um I tend to walk out of the room when someone says, "Well, Josephus said." <laughs> <laughs> Only in very specific circumstances is that okay? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> also, yeah. Josephus was living several hundred years after <laughs> whatever. All right. And um, certainly with no like personal motivations no. for writing. No, <laughs> it's just a strict historian trying oh, to get data, get the facts out there. Josephus, God bless you. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's, let's, um, let's get back to like, what's, what's some of the, some of the big kind of true, trues and falses about um, the, the Mesopotamian culture and, uh, and, how it relates to the Israelite culture. Mm. Um, so one of the things that I think is yeah pretty well established. We we talked about Gilgamesh uh, and and the flood narrative and some of the myths that were obviously carried over, right? And and some of the sort of archetypes that are obviously carried over and um, uh, things like the fact that like Ael was was part of the the pantheon, um, mm. and so so the so and like Asherah, right? I think mm. also comes from the, the same period. Um, so, so there are some things that I think are pretty well established that definitely are connective tissue. Um, and there's, you know, then there's the ancient alien stuff, which is like it's a, it's a football game. Um, but what are most people like missing? Do you think one of the, the big things that I think is a real big block for people, uh, is, is there's this disconnect between the story, the narrative that they know from the Bible, um, and how that sets up their inner timeline. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, so if you just go back to the Exodus, right. What, you know, if, if you're taking sort of the inner dating of the Bible, uh, the traditional dating always sets it sometime in the 15th century, right. 
mid mid 15th century bc right yeah, just that's so, right just so we're clear for the listeners right <laughs> if, you, um, if you don't know when it takes place it does not take place 500 right. years ago yeah. right 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 yeah, yeah. um and you know I, I obviously from an archaeological standpoint and from you know uh, looking at you know as, as 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 we've sort of come down um more recently it's it's clear that if there was an exodus uh or exoduses that it's probably going back to a memory in the 13th century so you know much later mm-hmm. um yeah but even even so uh if you're if you've got this internal timeline of the exodus being sometime in the late bronze age right second half of the second millennium bce well that sets up this this long chain of events for you if you're if you're following the bible's narrative uh, because now, okay, you've got the Israelites in Egypt for 400 years. Then before that, you know, you've got the patriarchs. They're wandering around Canaan and, you know, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then before that, you, you know, you've got uh, all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? The flood and all that stuff. Well, I think what's shocking to people is to, to find out that Iron Age Israel, this group that, you know, we first hear about in 1207 BCE in the Merenipta Stele, um, they were Canaanites, right? Right. That they were they were part of Canaanite culture, and uh, f- following this or during this uh, late Bronze Age collapse, um, or leading up to it, and then sort of fully taking effect maybe after the collapse, uh, this group of you know maybe it's it's, it's sort of debated. Uh, among archaeologists, but um, you know, most likely this group made up of you know, people from the cities that sort of fell into disrepair, perhaps you know, mm-hmm. uh, or fell out of out of common usage or whatever, um, and then pastoral nomads, maybe. But this group of people, this sort of I don't know, motley crew, perhaps, uh, goes up into the highlands and settles in this area that's not exactly super awesome and desirable for for living but it just shoots up during the iron age and and so when you when you stop and and realize wait a minute you don't have this long history of israel if centuries and centuries being down in egypt coming back all this stuff it's no this is a this is a group that came in the iron age and really is developing through the iron age to the point that people like um you know, Avraham Faust wrote a book on like, can we can we identify uh, ancient Israel or even proto-Israelites in the Iron Age? Um, that's shocking, I think, mm. to people because it's 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 a much it's a much younger, uh, you know, ethnic group that has that has grown up uh, than than what is an, is anticipated, and what that means is when you study. The history of just the broader ancient Near East, like I, I have a chapter uh, in each of the atheist handbooks on the history of the ancient Near East, and it's just sort of trying to give that general background. And one of the periods that a lot of people miss that's really, really interesting and really, really important is the Amarna period. And this is the time in the 14th century BCE where you have this like international diplomacy going on between Egypt and Assyria and Babylonia and, you know, uh, the Hittites and Mitanni and right. 
you know, all this, all this international diplomacy going on and movements of, uh, and, and, and uh, correspondence to these kings. But during this period, which we know a fair amount about, we have this whole host of letters, uh, cuneiform tablets that have these letters, like 300 of them, uh, 300 plus, that are between little petty kings in yeah. Canaan yeah. right. and the Pharaoh. Right. And so you get to see a lot of the inner workings of what's going on in Canaan. And, and Canaan during this, if you think about the time, it's a 14th century, right? This is after the traditional date of the Exodus and just before the, you know, the more, um, uh, I'd say critical date um, of the Exodus, you've got Egypt firmly in control of Canaan. Uh, and and that, that's it, like there are official, there are provinces, um, Egyptian provinces up there and Egyptian officials that are stationed up there. Like the Pharaoh is very, uh, very much aware of what's going on up there. And, um, and that's, that's jarring. I think when people try to connect the biblical inner biblical timeline and to line that up with what's going on in the Amarna period, it's like, oh my gosh, like this is, how does this work? And it doesn't, right? It doesn't. So I think that's a, that's a big thing to recognize is that you, you've got to be able to, and it's really hard to do, but shift that paradigm in your mind yeah. and say, okay, just because the Bible tells me right. that, you know, this Exodus took place and that Israel was in Egypt for all these years, that's not necessarily the case because right. once that happens and I'll shut up, but like once your brain can start to do that, then you can start to ask yourself questions like, okay, if the story has, um, the Israelites going and committing genocide against the Canaanites, first of all, like, what does that look like to people that are like, what, what, what might that mean? What might that have been born out of? But secondly, like, can we just take the Bible's word for it that the people that were living in Canaan, even if they're projecting it back hundreds of years, um, uh, and it's actually about the people around them now or whatever, like however one parses that out, can we just take the Bible's word for it that these are actually really, really wicked people that deserve to be killed? And the answer is, you know, spoilers, no, you can't do that because uh, texts do things. That's really interesting. I So, yeah, I, I guess I'm thinking about how like, I never really thought about it in this way before, but even if you are someone like me who does not take the biblical timeline seriously, um, it still, it occupies this like period of history and sort of takes up that real estate. And that if you're going to think about things that happen around it, they have to happen before or after, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it, and I can see how that alone would distort people's understanding of, of the, the time and place and also the, um, the, the, contributing factors that led to the creation of these texts and of this culture and, and everything else. Um, and I do think I, even I have a hard time sort of, even though I know like Exodus didn't happen, <laughs> like, uh, I, I can say that pretty confidently. I, I, I certainly think so. Um, that I still like, it still occupies this time in history in my head, yeah. right. That, yeah. that, that it makes it hard for me to see everything else that's going on around it. And I, I think that's a really, um, fascinating insight. Yeah. Um, um, I, I also want to ask then, like, 
do you have yourself a theory or sort of narrative of how the Israelites um, split off from the greater community or, or like where this came from? Because one thing I think is really interesting about the Abraham story, um, fictional though it is, is that it does recognize a couple of really interesting things. And one is that um, Abraham starts in Iraq, right? And and then moves out towards, um, you know, the, the the Levant and so forth. But, but um, also that it's very weird what's happening with him, like that it's, it, it recognizes the unorthodox nature of this guy establishing this new sort of subgroup within a, a broader culture. How common was that kind of thing? And like, are is this a, a truly sort of unique group of people among a much more sort of um, normative set of cultures, right, in, in, in the region? Yeah, so let me, let me see if I can't, it's going to sound like I'm not directly answering you. That's fine. <laughs> uh, but, but I promise that I'll bring it back. Um, it's actually interesting what's going on with the story of Abraham. Uh, because if you, and I write about this in, in that chapter on plagiarism, uh, but Ronald Hendel has a, an amazing article that he put together. And of course it's, it's people have developed, lots of people have developed this. None of these ideas are, are new to me. Um, but you know, there's a reason that, uh, you see the movement that you do of Abraham, because if you think about, um, what the primeval history, Genesis 1 through 11, what it's doing um, is it's it's a movement. It's a movement from innocence toward the city of Babylon. Mm -hmm. And while that might not sound striking, perhaps, to somebody listening to this, if you think back, let's go back to the Epic of Gilgamesh. And if you think about the, the way Gilgamesh starts, Gilgamesh is in the city of Uruk. He's the king of Uruk. And uh, from, a, from the Mesopotamian standpoint, um, people that lived in the periphery, people that lived like up in the mountains, people that lived outside of the city, they were the, the backwoods, you know, uncultured. Like there's a, there's a text called the Marriage of Martu. It's a Sumerian text. And it talks about you know, why on earth would you marry this guy? You know, he, he doesn't know about bread and he doesn't know about <laughs> offering good sacrifices. Like, in other words, he's not a city guy like yeah. we are. Yeah. Right. Um, and this is absolutely what we see in the Epic of Gilgamesh. So if you think about uh, Enkidu, yeah. you know, Enkidu yeah. is, is created out in the steppe and he's this, you know, very animal-like but innocent yep. creature person. And, uh, of course, Shamchat, the prostitute, goes out there, humanizes him by having sex with him for a week. And when she does, and he becomes human, and now, the, now he's lost that connection with the animals, they won't come near him, he's become more human. What is it that she does? Here's bread, here's beer, here's clothing. Mm. Now, let me take you to mighty Uruk. There's movement from this, the, the step and innocence toward the city. And that movement is seen as good. Now, if you think about, and of course, even at the end of Gilgamesh, right? What is it that he does? He's done all his travels. He's done all, he's expended all his energy trying to find immortality. And where does he end up? 
back at Uruk. Right. And he says the exact same thing that he said at the opening, right? Look at the walls. Look how big this, look at the Ananda Temple. Look at all these things and how mighty and amazing this city is. Because the city was the place to be. That's what the pinnacle of civilization was. Uh-huh. Yeah. When you think about Genesis 1 through 11, you have the same movement. You start with Adam and Eve in the garden, innocence, right? Um, they They become ostensibly more human, right? They get clothed. And the trajectory through the, the the text is to move toward Genesis 11, which is the tower that's more the city and tower of Babel, of Babylon. But the movement is bad, right? right because right, if you think, right, about, right. think about what is happening is that all the people are coming together, supposed to spread out. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to go out and populate the earth, right? They're supposed to fill it up. But they don't. They keep coming back together. They keep coming back together, and God has to keep sending them back out. Well, I was talking to Dr. Kip Davis about this. I don't know if you if you know him, mm-hmm. um, but I was talking to him because he edited Volume Two, and uh, we were just sort of walking through that chapter because we did a video series on some of the material. And he said, "You know, it's really interesting, Josh, because think about where Abraham came out of. So if if Genesis eleven terminates with Babylon right. and everybody being spread out. Abraham then comes from Ur, which is another Southern Mesopotamian city, one of the preeminent Southern Mesopotamian cities. Um, and what does he do for the rest of his life? Does he go to a city? No, he's intense and he's wandering around, wandering around. He's doing what people are supposed to be doing. Right. So this is a very clear polemic uh, I think as scholars, of course, before me, long before I've argued, I think it's very clear. This is a polemic against, uh, you know, this, this idealized, uh, concept of the city in Mesopotamian culture. And so because of that, um, when we think about somebody like Abraham and what the text is doing, I don't think we should be thinking about this, you know, from like a historical standpoint, or, you know, maybe trying to see some sort of kernel of development or something, but this is this is a reaction, I think, uh, and a statement, a pretty bold statement against um, this this Mesopotamian culture. And of That's course, really we could talk about why, but you know, but but that so that being said, if if we're not getting origins necessarily from like seeing that Abraham as like an early story or something, um, then what what do we? You know, what do we think? So I would, you know, I, I will say here, this is obviously not my area of expertise. This is the, this is the terrain of an archaeologist. So I would direct, um, obviously I can direct people to, uh, I have a chapter in volume two on the archaeology of the origins, early origins of Israel. Um, but I would direct people to people like um, uh, William Deaver, Israel Finkelstein, Avraham Faust. Yeah, there are lots of people that work on yeah. early Israel. Yeah. Um, but like I, I, I would say that what most scholars would say is that you it's it's sort of likened unto uh I'm 43. I don't know how old you are, John, but I'm like also, the, I'm also 43. So oh, okay. So probably a similar experience, <laughs> you know, when we were in high school, it was like the Saved by the Bell era, yeah, you know, sure. and uh, yeah. you, you had, I don't know how it is now, I should go ask my 15-year-old, <laughs> but like, you know, there were very distinct groups, 
right? Yeah. You had like the goth kids, you had the sports, the jocks, you know, you had the nerds, whatever. Yeah. These are all kids from the same goddamn neighborhood, right? They're from the same place. <laughs> uh <-huh>. um, <laughs> uh -huh. But they're so distinguished. But how are they distinguished? They're distinguished by their ethnic markers, right? And of course, we wouldn't call them necessarily ethnic markers in that case. But like the, the, the things that set them apart, so like the Doc Martens, right? Uh, or the dark fingernails or the Letterman jacket or, you know, the tape on the center of the glass. I know this is all very stereotypical, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. like, how do we identify with the group um, that, that, that we engage with, that we're a part of? And this is what we see in uh, ancient Canaanite culture um, is that you have these distinct ethnic markers that begin to develop. So like the lack of pork consumption in early Iron Age Israel it's one of the ways that it's one of the distinctive features that you see. So if you look at like Philistine cities and the material culture that's pulled from these Philistine cities, you see a pretty high uh, degree of pig bones that show up in, in the, in the remains. Um, but not in these Israelite cities. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. And, and so, so things like that, things like circumcision, <laughs> things yeah. like um, the four room house. Yeah. And it's not that, um, it's 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 not that the group was distinct therefore they did these things it was they had separated themselves out and these were the characteristics that they adopted these markers that they adopted either consciously or unconsciously and again this is more of like an anthropological thing but to to set themselves apart from let's say the philistine culture that was around them or phoenicians in the north or whatever um, and so that's, it's, it's not so much that they're like this, you know, outsider group of people. We, I think scholars pretty much have done away with the idea of this outsider model of either conquest or infiltration or something. Sure. These, yeah, these yeah. are, these are local, these are Canaanites that are coming from the inside, but just separating themselves out from, uh, from other groups. And over time, forging a, a more and more coherent identity with each other, right? That's because right. That's, that's really interesting. I, so I thought of two things as you were as you were talking about that. Some things sort of clicked into place for me. One, it seems that one of the you know the sort of theory here um, is that they're not terribly dissimilar to like the Essenes, right? Several hundred years later, they're like dropouts from from urban life who 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 you know think it's all corrupt and terrible and and sort of kind of living off the grid, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? Like that they. That that critique that you see so much um, in in that that you now have highlighted that I never thought about before um, seems to be sort of consistent with uh, <laughs> with that same kind of um, social movement that happened many centuries later. Um, and the other one that I, I it just sort of clicked into place too was I, I realize now that whenever Abraham is forced into an urban environment is when corruption sets in and, mm. and where he has to make moral compromises. And, and like, right. you know, the, the, the first time we, the, 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 uh, the famine sends him into Egypt and he's like, pretends that Sarah's his sister and, and, and all that stuff. Um, and yet when he is free from the urban environment, he, he goes back into his, you know, pure piety. And I'd never really quite yeah. put those things together. And it's, it's all, it all makes, uh, makes perfect sense. Um, that's a fascinating it's way just, of understanding it. It's yeah. so important. This is why, just as sort of an aside, I react so strongly, at least internally, because I'm not terribly confrontational, but um, 
to people saying stuff like, oh, these ignorant goat herders mm. you know, that, that, yeah. that wrote the Bible. First of all, the idea that you, you have somebody writing a text, <laughs> it's like <laughs> antithetical to them being ignorant. Um, but, but yes, especially but at the time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, more than that, like these are, even though they contain what I consider to be horribly problematic, particularly from, you know, 21st century um, morals and ethics, they contain horrible, let's say at least overtones, if not outright messages, mm -hmm. um, just like all ancient Near Eastern texts do. Uh, they're they're beautiful pieces of literature, right? I mean, that they're they're crafted, and there's there's great intentionality behind it. And um, so, this is a, you said something earlier that uh, when I when I mentioned Gilgamesh just before that, the thing that was like the, the 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 catalyst for it was, you know, how you can appreciate it so much more without having this sort of um, religious commitment, theological commitment to it. Yeah. Once you can step away from having to read it through a particular interpretive framework, my God, it just, it becomes so interesting yeah. to think about like, okay, what, what actually could have been the setting for this? Um, what could have motivated this type of polemic, right? What is it that the exile has done? to this group of people being in Babylonian exile for damn near a century. Like, what is it that this has done? Um, and what do we see when, you know, the people are coming back into the land and you have two groups of people, people that have been there the entire time and people that are coming back from, uh, you know, Babylonian captivity, like what, 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 what's the interaction like? Where do these texts develop? What is it that's being said here? And why? Those are very interesting questions that once you leave behind the, well, it has to mean this type of interpretive model, boy, that stuff can, you know, now it's just like, it's really interesting trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, I, you know, one of the things that, again, just from a purely kind of uh, writing and storytelling standpoint, I still like tear up uh, in the scene when when Jacob and Esau are reunited for the first time, yeah. um, and I just it's such great writing and it's such yeah. great storytelling and and, yeah. and and the 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 tension building up to that moment and the sense that Jacob has of like, well, it's all over now. Uh, you know, I, I loved you all. Uh, here yeah. comes Esau. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you all go this way. I'll go this way. Some of us will survive. I'll take the hit, and then Esau shows up, and it's like, "Hey, brother!" And it's it's uh, it's wonderful. But yeah, it, it's it's a it's a whoever wrote that is a really good writer, especially yeah, right. in in sort of you know the the um, the limitations and uh, and lack of the development of narrative that was happening. Right? Uh, they didn't have a whole bunch of best-selling authors to 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 yeah, right. Um, That's exactly to, right. To, to pick from and 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 figure out their techniques and all that sort of thing. But. Um, I've had you for almost an hour, so I, I want to make sure we wrap this up. Well, I'm sure we'll talk again sometime. Um, I have a lot more Definitely. stuff I want to talk to you about, so we'll we'll, we'll have to do a, another episode at some point in the future. Uh, but I do want to ask you one more thing, and I, and I think this is um, this intrigues me about sort of the way you approach um, your public work. So, 
there's a lot of uh, academic work and and um, sort of you know secular perspective work on Old Testament, New Testament, you name it, um, that that don't come directly at you with the atheist angle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that you chose to name your book uh, the Atheist Handbook to the Old Testament. Um, I was talking to Jessica about this uh, a couple months ago and, mm-hmm. and about the the frustration that the both of us feel of like loving to study religion and being atheistic and like or, or you know, sort of on that spectrum, at least. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, most of these sort of atheist academics are unbearable uh, and a lot of atheists uh, out and out just reject there being any sort of merit or, or, or value in, in studying religion at all. And and and, you know that sort of thing. And, and so I certainly have like, on the one hand, I appreciate that perspective existing in the world. Um, but why is it important to you? Like, wh- why not just call it, you know, the, the, the academic handbook <laughs> mm. uh, or, or something along those lines? Um, why is it so important, do you think, to sort of frame this as accessible for or, or, or the way that if someone is coming at it from atheism, like from that perspective, that, that this is how a good way for them to sort of understand these texts. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think the, the, the market for these volumes, at least thus far has been the online community, the online, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not just the online atheist community. Cause I mean, there are a lot of Christians that buy the books as well, um, which I'm really happy about. Um, but the, the the thread that runs through each volume um, is is how to you know, picture yourself at um, Thanksgiving dinner, right? This is one of the, one of the stories that I open with. Um, I think in the second volume, like you're, you're sitting at Thanksgiving dinner and you you know you go to take a, a fork full of pumpkin pie, and you know Aunt, Aunt Janet, you know, or Uncle Frank says. Yeah, but uh, you know the Bible is uh, has has three hundred prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, <laughs> you know how can how can you be an atheist, Josh? Uh, because I think all of us, if particularly if we came out of a more evangelical or fundamentalist upbringing, you know, not everybody leaves that in your family, right? So if you do, yeah, now you're left having these conversations at every goddamn family gathering. Mm-hmm. And so my goal in this was to be able to say, all right, look, how can we have good, solid, foundational academic information about these hot button issues that will, I hate to use the term arm, but in this context, I mean, I feel like that's, that's, that's probably right because it probably does feel like a battle at that Thanksgiving dinner, but to arm the atheist or the agnostic or the skeptic with enough information to be able to say, Hey, look, what you're saying isn't right. It's not the best way to think about these texts. Um, and maybe you need to reframe how you're, how you're coming at the Bible. Uh, because you know, so so being able to say, uh, the example that I always hear is, uh, you know, like First Samuel fifteen. People always bring up First Samuel fifteen in debates, yeah. 
and how can God, because it's so clear, yeah, right? Like, how can God command, uh, you know, the this this you know, the, the the unaliving of um, you know, small children and infants, and the first thing that comes back from an apologist says, <laughs> yeah, but do you know the context? Yeah, right? of course. Do you know the, Do you know the context? And. <laughs> In these debates over and over again, I just heard the atheist going, why do I need to know the context? <laughs> and the thing is, the reality is you don't, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to know the context of who the Amalekites were to know that that's a bad thing to command, right? But the problem is if you're going to have an effective conversation, if you're going to have a meaningful conversation, one that actually gets people thinking you have to kind of meet people where they are. And for a fundamentalist evangelical, man, that narrative is the truth. Yeah. And so you've got to know that in Exodus 17, there's this thing with the Amalekites where they ambush Israel from behind. And, and that's the reason that God is a cosmic warfare with, you know, the Amalekites. So if you can, if you can know that background information and then know some data points about first Samuel 15. Well, now you, now you, you're armed, you're, you're equipped to have this meaningful conversation. And so the, the last thing I'll say about it is the reason that I'm proud of those books is that even though they are the atheist handbook, you know, atheist handbooks, whatever to the old Testament, um, they're not this like openly antagonistic toward yeah. belief. Yeah. People don't realize this, but yeah, you know, my, my wife is a Christian, mm -hmm. um, and I've never once tried to like deconvert her. She's never once tried <laughs> to convert me, um, and and the the reason is that like I I, I like I don't care. Like, why would I care? Um, what I do care about, as I'm sure Jessica said any number of times, is that when you start to use your religion as a weapon to try to restrict the rights of others, now we've got a problem. And that's what I see fundamentalist evangelicalism doing. And, and on the whole, unfortunately, evangelicalism, um, even more progressive forms of it, is, the, is they're trying to use the text, even if they mean it well, they weaponize it um, in such a way as to say, what well, you can't be you, because mm. that's mm -hmm. sin. Mm -hmm. You have to be this other way. Um, and so... I think that being able to set that boundary and to be able to say, all right, here are, here are the reasons that I don't think you should view the text this way, but I'm not coming at this and trying to tell you you shouldn't believe anything anymore. Yeah. It's fine if you don't, but there's a way, for example, to understand that the Exodus didn't happen as recorded in the book of Exodus and Numbers. Um, and yet still be a Christian and, and in a very meaningful way. Yeah. Because like my father doesn't know anything about the historicity of the Exodus. What he knows about the Exodus is that it's, there are songs about it that get him through the day and connect him to his faith community. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the message is not about drowning the Pharaoh, uh, the Pharaoh's army and not about the plagues and any of this stuff. All he remembers about the Exodus probably is that the people were in need, God came to the rescue, and under impossible circumstances, he brought them out. And mm -hmm. that's what God can do for him mm -hmm. in this difficult job that he's got today, 
or in this difficult thing that he's got going on with this, you know, person that he knows. Like, and it, it and it it's the same sort of thing that the Epic of Gilgamesh can do. Um, is to remember those types of things, maybe not about a deity for me, but about life and life circumstances and what ultimately tends to happen. Um, just to remember things about humanity and about the good that we can bring to each other. Like these are the types of messages that ancient texts can bring. And if that comes through with a more, um, you know, religious tint to it, fine. Um, but it's striking that balance, I think, between I know that I'm right and I'm going to bang you over the head with my interpretation of this text. And I glean good things from this ancient text. And it brings me closer to my God, whatever that means. Um, and I want to be a better human because of it. Like that's, that's where, if they're going to end up somewhere, that's where I'd like somebody to end up. I'm going to ask you one more question. Um, yes. That's kind of a follow-up to that. Um, because I'm also really interested in this, uh, and this is sort of partly due to my own um, experience. So, you know, as we've established we're the same age, um, so I'm sure we experienced a lot of the same things at the same time. I was a religious studies major in college um, pre 9-11. And, uh, and, and pre 9-11, everybody was telling me that religion's going to be dead in 20 years. So why bother studying it? Mm. Uh, <laughs> no one's going to be religious anymore. It's dying. And then 9-11 happened. And suddenly people were like, uh, explain religion to me. And I'm like, okay, um, sure. <laughs> yes. Um, however, like one of the things I will also say is that over the course of the last 20 some odd years, right, um, the people that I found are most resistant to knowing anything about um you know the ancient israelite culture uh or anything else in the bible are like the people who just are like atheists and don't care mm -hmm. um what what is the pitch to them like what what does someone who who doesn't have fundamentalist family members that they have to equip themselves against mm, uh right. and, and and are not connected to that to that um that uh world at all um what is in it for them to still learn about this uh the reality of this history and um and these cultures and, and texts and so forth i think it's the same pitch for the humanities in general yeah right and that is that you know everything from uh you know, understanding the beauty of you know what what people can do uh and looking because we have like even even if we're looking at the biblical texts through much later manuscript copies, seeing the connections between them and the wider ancient Near East is, I mean, I, I, beautiful is such a weird way to say that, I guess. But for me, that's what it is. Yeah. But it's so intriguing because, uh, you know, like when it comes to Mesopotamia, we have extant documentation. Like we have quote unquote the originals, right? We've got contracts and letters and like we have letters from the early second millennium BCE, wives writing to their husbands <laughs> who are merchants that have been gone for so long saying, Hey, you left out of here and took all the silver with you. Didn't yeah. even leave me enough grain in the house, you know, to do anything. Hurry to hell back up and get back <laughs> here. You know, uh, like we yeah. have these letters and, and so you get these insights into people's lives. But but everything from that to if we forget the past, we're doomed to repeat it, right? And I, I think that I think that if you can if you can step away from what I think is so often I don't want to draw you know paint with a broad brush, 
But I think very often people are just so happy to um, to be able to get away in any way from, particularly here in America, what they see <laughs> religion doing. Particularly yeah. this again, this this fundamentalist type of religion. But, yeah, um, that they just want to disassociate themselves for so much. If you can, if you can sort of hold that in one hand and say, yeah, but there's a nuanced way that I can do this. Because again, I doubt any of those people have a problem reading Gilgamesh. And if you can reframe it in such a way that you can say, all right, I'm going to read through the Old Testament text, setting aside all of the baggage that it has as much as I can, reframing it to picture this as I'm reading Gilgamesh. Because at that point, now you can start to see it as, as literature, because that's what it is, right? It's ancient literature. And it's people coming together and saying things about themselves, about other cultures, about their what they consider to be their interactions with the divine. And, and it's really enlightening because I think it can actually tell us a lot about ourselves today. And certainly uh, it's very much um, uh, a, a, a tremendous influence upon the New Testament and, of course, then on Western civilization as a whole. So I think it's really, really important from a strictly you know, it's really cool yeah. standpoint, which you can learn all the way through to this is something that I think is really important for us to understand from the standpoint of the humanities as a whole. Yeah. And I, you know, I sort of, one of the things I try and <laughs> I try and pitch people with is the idea of like, you know, imagine someone in a thousand years time uh, after our civilization is long gone, you know, finding a Star Wars DVD and, mm. and finding a way to play it and uh, watching these stories and like what they would learn about our values and, and our aspirations and everything else. And then, of course, some other people have been like, oh, they they, could tra they travel through space. It says so right there. <laughs> they, had they had lightsabers, you know, uh, inevitably. Right. That, that would that would take place. But I do think that's, you know, it's uh, the, the stories that we tell always throughout human history are 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 time capsules of, of so much of the stuff that we um, can't sort of put into physical form. Right. And as as who we are and what we value and um, and how we live. So, um yeah, and there would think, there would be Star Wars apologetics too, right? Oh, of course, oh my God, it'd be insufferable. Can you? <laughs> who, who was uh, it? Was Apologia that was talking about it recently? I think uh, where he was saying that, um, like, I'm not. He, uh, he he's very closely uh, related uh, or intimate, uh, intimately involved or was intimately involved with Star Wars, but <laughs> like the, the the earlier versions have like these old TV monitors or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the new ones have. Yeah. So, so you'd have to. Explain yeah, so yeah. how is it that they're you know in the timeline what will be the apologetic there you know yeah. well there must have been a collapse in society that's exactly what yeah that's that's exactly what it is right like that that's how that's how they're explaining it now through retconning it oh um, my gosh if you watch like Andor which takes place right you know, all the technology is very kind of scrappy and 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 bleak and like it's not yeah it's it's very funny that um then it must be true it right? must it be must true be look true. i can prove to you this really happened because if you <laughs> if you look at the missing link which is andor it explains there all of your questions and therefore all this stuff really it says it right there a Where long time ago it yeah, says it happened in history it's the beginning of the text <laughs> a long time ago right like there you go your 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 argument is thus invalid um <laughs> <laughs> if it's possible it's true I would pay any amount of money to see if that uh, that prediction actually comes to fruition, but it would be very, nice. very funny to watch um, for sure. Uh, all right. So anyway, I've kept you long enough. Um, 
let's definitely do this again sometime uh, in, in, in a few months or whatever. And we'll talk, we'll talk about slavery. Um, it's a topic I'm really interested in as well, but I and feel like always fun. Always. always oh yeah. Never, that. never not a good time. Um, <laughs> uh, would you like to, uh, uh, advertise yourself a little bit before we, before we head off? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. So my wife runs a channel, a YouTube channel called digital Hammurabi. Um, and the, 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 the sort of the, uh, the centerpiece of that channel is, um, she created a scholarship program, a nonprofit, where she offers uh, individual $2,000 scholarships to PhD students to get them through the summer months, um, those that are studying in ancient Near Eastern, the field of ancient Near Eastern studies. Um, and so actually those applications are, are starting up soon, I think in March. Cool. Uh, they've, they, they, it's completely crowdfunded. Um, and there's a, there's actually a black scholars matter, uh, fund that we, that we, uh, set up or she set up, um, to, to get, um, uh, black scholars to, um, conferences to network and to sort of, uh, you know, get in contact with other scholars in the field. So those are the things that she does over there. Um, and again, it's digital Hammurabi, H-A-M-M-U-R-A-B-I. Uh, giving has been down. She's been able to give three or even four scholarships each year for the past three years. I think this year it's down. She can only give two. Okay. Um, and so, you know, if, if people are interested in supporting that, obviously I know she'd be very, very excited about that. Um, but, uh, and if you're interested in my work, uh, you can go to Amazon and type in Joshua Bowen, B-O-W-E-N, and all of my I think I've got five books now. <laughs> There's another one coming out here soon. But uh, yeah, those are all there. And I'm working on a second edition to Did the Old Testament Endorse Slavery uh, right now in my spare time, my very, very <laughs> massive amount of spare time. Oh, I know it. Time. I know it. Yeah, I can relate. Um, yeah, There's nothing... five kids, you know, they just, they just they're like, Dad, go work. We, we don't we don't need you. Oh, five kids. <laughs> God bless you. Um, I hope your year only uh, picks up from here uh, and it's all it's all I, it's, I wouldn't say uphill people say downhill for bad but uphill can't be good because you don't right, have to right. go uphill either but whatever that is whatever the opposite of downhill is that isn't having to go uphill uh, I will put links uh, into the show notes so that you guys can uh, check all that out there um, Josh thanks a lot thank you very much Joe.